If you have your Bibles open to Revelation 6, you're in the right place. We're not going to cover the entire chapter. We're going to look at the four horsemen this morning. I think there's a growing sense in many of us that the winds are blowing ill for Christians in America. This is not necessarily a bad thing for the purity of the church, is it? But we need to be ready for the trouble and disapproval and danger that comes with persecution. And I do believe that we will be facing different types of persecution in the days to come. Peter told us to be careful to uh, be able to stand against the fiery ordeal as uh, it comes and not wondering about it as if it were something strange. Like, where did this come from? As we look at Revelation 6 and you see the picture of the four horsemen here, uh, you might have in your mind some fanciful ideas about these four horsemen, and probably for good reason. Uh, over the years, the four horsemen have been portrayed in different ways. They've been portrayed as different movie characters. They have been nicknames for football players like the four uh, running backs at Notre Dame when Newt Rockney was coach. I wasn't alive then. Neither were you. Uh, songs from country singers talking about the four horsemen to Metallica's song about four horsemen and everything in between. When you think about the four horsemen, you might be thinking, wow, this is like Marvel. This is comic book stuff. But I want to bring this home and I want to bring it down to earth because that's exactly how the Holy Spirit wanted us to receive it. This is not fanciful. This is not something that is in the imagination of the John Revelator. It is a vision that he had from God about what's happening on the earth and what will ultimately happen in the future. When you think about the horses and the men on these horses, don't just simply think about them and their depiction here. These men represent something that's happening on the earth. They're not necessarily men. In fact, the horses here are not so much horses. You might want to think about forces, forces, forces from God. I don't want us to get swept out to sea with Revelation because we're going to wade into some deep territory when it comes to this book. If you're just now joining us in the study of Revelation, you might have come this morning going, whoa, I didn't want to study the book of Revelation. I've been told in recent days I never read the book of Revelation because I'm afraid of Revelation. I don't understand Revelation. It gives me the creeps. I've been told all that through this series, the book of Revelation. And I think the reason is that as we begin to wade out into Revelation, we hear so many different perspectives about what is seen in the images here. And these images portray certain truth, but oftentimes we wade out way past our ability to swim. When Les and I were on our honeymoon, we took one of these excursions off of our cruise. That was an, experience, an excursion that became an experience. Let me tell you why. We were told by our guide, follow, up, follow me, whatever you do, follow me. And secondly, if you start getting swept out to sea by the strong currents here, just swim parallel to shore. I've heard that all my life. I grew up in Florida. You swim parallel to shore. Well, sure enough, as we were snorkeling with a large group of people, the current got strong and began to sweep people out to sea. And Les and I just did what we always knew to do, and that is to swim parallel to, sea, uh, to, to, to shore. But as I got to the shore with Les, I looked out and there were people who were literally swept out to sea and they were being saved, rescued by a United States Coast Guard cutter. Thank God for the Coast Guard. I don't want you to get out swept out to sea theologically or spiritually in the book of Revelation. I want us to swim close to shore and shore will be the scriptures. Everyone say scriptures. 
Scripture is the best interpreter, uh, interpreter of other scripture. Uh, scripture is a diamond and you cut diamonds with diamonds. And so as we look at the book of Revelation and we compare Revelation to scripture, I think we'll come to a real understanding of what John saw and what he wants us to see this morning. In fact, Revelation chapter 6 comes from a vision that Zechariah saw in the Old Testament. As you read Revelation, we're not coming into necessarily new territory, but newly revealed territory. In other words, this depiction of four horsemen is not new to John. Zechariah said there were four horsemen, four chariots, depicted the same way in similar fashion in the Old Testament that were God's judgments on people who came against Israel. This helps me to understand that the four horsemen then are judges, and they are God's judges on the earth. And they're going to wreak incredible havoc to those who have prayed a prayer that God has answered. Here's the prayer that they prayed. God, we don't need you, so would you leave us alone? And so God answers that prayer, and he sends the judgment on that prayer. Now, let me mention a few things that will help us to wade out into this deep territory of Revelation. To begin with, John is the revelator, and in chapter 1, he receives the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapters 2 and 3, we have the depiction of the churches through seven letters that were given to churches. They represent churches of all ages, and I think it will help us to understand that. If you haven't studied with us in Revelation, I would encourage you to go back and read and study about the seven churches. But John is a prisoner. John is a prisoner. He's on an Alcatraz of sorts called Patmos. And he's a prisoner for one particular reason. He tells us this, the preaching of the gospel. I can imagine that there was some time when John, with his church members, were called to carry their tribute to Caesar, which was a tax. Whenever taxes were paid to Caesar, it would have been an interesting time. You're just going about your business. You're going off to work. Kids going to school, whatever they're doing. People headed to the synagogue. People headed to the temple. People headed to go play. But there would be a moment in that day when tribute was to be taken, when the Roman authorities showed up, set up a tent. Could you just imagine this picture? Roman authorities coming down from Rome uh, or wherever they are uh, outposted from and setting up uh, a collection tent. Everyone knew what it was about. Everybody knew what it was for. It's time to pay our taxes. This tent would be unraveled, dusted off and set up, and then a leather table unrolled, and there's the leather table, and on top of that leather table, a bust of Caesar, who at this time in John's life was Trajan. Why is that important? Because then people would line up to pay their taxes. And then before paying their taxes and laying their money. Can you just smell that leather of that table? Can you just see that bust of Caesar and see these people in line paying their taxes would kneel down and say, Caesar is Lord. Do you ever get worked up when you're in line? I mean, I was just in line getting ice and there's a lot of people in line in front of me and they're all getting scratch off tickets. And I said, I don't need ice. (laughs) But imagine you're in line, and you're a Christian, and you know Jesus is Lord, and you watch everyone in front of you kneel their knee and say, Caesar is Lord, and you know you have your money, and you're going to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but you're going to render unto God what is God's. 
And you lay your money on your table, and they look at you, and they say, kneel, say, confess, Caesar is Lord. And you say, there is no Lord but God, and Jesus is Lord. Who taught you that? Our pastor. John's arrested. He's exiled to Patmos. He's led people to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. This is very important as we move into Revelation because we're going to be taught by John there is coming an antichrist. And I want you to understand the antichrist is one who claims to be powerful and is followed because he has something to give that Christ doesn't. In other words, the Antichrist is not simply against Christ. He's not one who may stand up and say, just want you to know, I'm Antichrist, I'm anti-God, and I want you to worship me. But instead, instead, it's a key, key word, he is instead of Christ. I have something instead of Christ. He doesn't maybe say that, but he has something instead of Christ. And what does he say? Man is Lord. He may not say that in verbal fashion, but he will lay out a plan that says humankind is the highest order. People will love that. His number is 666, the number of man. There will be a day when men and women will have to decide whether they bow their knee to man or bow their knee to Jesus at the peril of their own life. John understands this. He's a prisoner for this. John's a pastor. God gave him, through the Holy Spirit, five books of our New Testament. Interesting about John. I love John. His title or his nickname was a son of thunder. He and his brother were called the sons of thunder. I don't know where they got that name, but I, they sound like wrestlers to me. I grew up in the South. They sound like wrestlers to me. But you know, this guy, John, the son of thunder, was a loving disciple. He's known as the beloved disciple. He loved Jesus. He served Jesus for 70 years. He was at the cross when Jesus was crucified. He writes... Over 80 times the word love in his five books, 70 some odd times the word witnesses in one form or another. He was such an evangelist and he loved the truth. He loved the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and would love that everyone who followed after Jesus walk in that truth. He was a faithful man of God. He was a pastor. He was also, interestingly enough, a prophet. He could see what others could not see. When John was on the earth, he was the first to see the resurrected Christ. He was first to notice the grave clothes in the tomb that were left behind. He was first to see the Lord at the lakeside toiling after toiling after fish all night long. I think the best thing that we see is the revelator John who has vision like none other, who has in the book of Revelation the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ and His majesty, the vision of the church and its reality, and a vision of the lost world and all of its hostility, and a vision of eternity with all of its glory. Uh, don't go to many movies, but I've learned this about movies. If it starts at 7 o'clock, show up about 7.20. I know that some of you are like, can't do that. 
Starts at seven. I'm getting there at seven. And what you'll have is a bunch of trailers of coming events, coming movies. Maybe you enjoy that. John's like that. John has a, a great deal of trailers here concerning future events. He's telling us what is about to occur. We've learned already in chapters four and five of Revelation, the sovereign God who is on the throne gives John a revelation of an opening of a scroll. Seven seals are on that scroll. The scroll contains God's plan for the consummation of all things. One by one seals are open. Christ the king commissions four horsemen. Each of the four are symbols of forces that bring unprecedented and worldwide cataclysms. But they are worldwide realities leading to these cataclysms. By the way, when I use the word cataclysm, I say that because there are no small cataclysms, are there? You might every once in a while, just to ease someone's blood pressure, say, hey, we had a small disaster. I've never heard someone say, we had a small cataclysm. And that's the reason I've chose that word, because these events are cataclysmic. There have been cataclysms in the past that we read in the history. We know there was a flood that flooded the entire world. And after that, an Egyptian slavery that was cataclysmic. Boy, what a cataclysm for the Egyptians when the Passover angel came over that land. There had been the Roman incursions that caused quite a bit of trouble in the days, but all made the way for the cross. John's telling us about some future events that are coming, and let's look at those. First, the white horse, the white horse. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write this. What is the white horse about? What's well, a force that brings a force, a force of deception. Notice verse... One, now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider and a bow and a crown was given to him. And he came, notice this, came out to conquer and to conquer. Now Christ is unsealing the scroll. The first seal is broken. And when the first seal of the scroll is broken, Unleashed is the white horse and its rider who has a bow, an instrument of war, and the crown, a crown given to him, not a diadem in the Greek, but Stephanos, which is a, a, a given crown, not an awarded crown, and angels commanding. What are the angels commanding? Commanding this rider on this horse to go forth to conquer, to be conquering. Now, I want you to recognize a couple of things here. This rider comes in order to overcome humankind. How will he do this? We're going to note that there's going to be a great deal of destruction that follows the white horse. I feel like the white horse is first, and the white horse is probably greatest, and the white horse has the strongest of all weaponry. When you read about the other horses, you read about pestilence and famine and war and death, and those are strong enemies. But the white horse brings the strongest of all. Now, we're looking at something in the future, y'all, something that has not yet occurred. There's coming this incredible deception on the earth in which people believe a lie. However, however, this is why you need to see how real this is and not fanciful. The deception the white horse is going to bring in full cataclysmic strength is already in effect in our world now. 
The strongest weapon of overcoming mankind is deception. And mankind right now is overwhelmingly being deceived by the enemy. Uh, I want to dispel a notion too here that uh, the rider on this white horse is the Lord Jesus Christ. There are a number of good men and godly men who have stated that this first rider is in fact Jesus because this rider is a conqueror and this rider has a crown and this rider is on a white horse. We read in the book of Revelation in chapter 19, Jesus is coming back on a white horse. Anybody love horses here? I think all of us at some point in our lives wanted a horse, like to ride a horse. And the only reason I think that anybody doesn't want a horse or like horses, besides the fact they cost an arm and a leg, is that they're scary. Some people are intimidated by horses. You read Job 39 and read how Job depicts the horse. It is absolutely beautiful how we have this depiction of this incredible creation of God. Powerful and strong, intimidating. If you're at war and you hear the, the, the trampling of horse, horse hooves coming at you, it, it would strike fear in your heart. The idea here is that this is a strong, intimidating feature, a force that's coming to conquer. However, when Jesus comes back, he's coming back on a white horse like we've never seen. And I don't know about you guys, you will have your fear of horses dispelled if you have them, and we will all be coming back on horses with our Lord. I always wanted to be a cowboy. But this white horse that Jesus comes back on is, come, is not this same horse in chapter 6, nor is the crown the same crown as our Lord will wear the crown that states that he is king of kings and lord of lords, a diadem that he has faithfully earned. In fact, in Revelation 19, he's given a name, and that name is in his thigh. His name is faithful and true, and in righteousness he comes to judge faithful and true. However, in chapter 6, in comparison to chapter 19, the rider on the white horse is coming to divide truth from error by showing those who reject Christ love lies. They love falsehood. They are not faithful. They are not true, nor do they love what is faithful and true. The revelation of Jesus here in Revelation 19 demonstrates the fact that he is the faith one, the righteous one who comes in truth. In chapter 6, we see the revelation of man who loves darkness, loves the lie above the truth. Interesting how John, the revelator, writes in John's gospel, John chapter 3, that men love darkness rather than light. Isn't that interesting? Plato made the observation that it's children that hate the darkness and are scared of the darkness, but it's men who grew up to be scared of the light because it exposes truth. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul writes about what's going to be happening at the end of time. 
He says the coming of the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, is by the activity of Satan. The Antichrist has been called Satan's man or Satan's superman. He'll come with all power of false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception and truth, and and, uh, those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and to be saved. Therefore, God sends them, listen to this, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Paul agrees. Paul says the lawless one's coming to do what? He's to give men what they wanted. They don't want God. They don't want the truth. They hate the truth and they hate light. And so God gives them what they want. And they believe a lie to depict their true nature. The true nature of man is to reject the creator and worship the creature. That's the true nature of man. Go all the way back to the garden. What was the problem with Adam and Eve? Why did they sin? Well, Adam sinned because he wanted to be the man. To worship the creature instead of the creator. Instead of honoring God, the creator of all things, he rejected the creator for the creation. This then led to the plight of humankind for the rest of history, just right after Adam gets banished from the Garden of Eden, a gentleman by the name of Nimrod comes to the scene, the forefront in the book of Revelation, Nimrod. I remember growing up and every once in a while hearing someone say, you're a Nimrod. I didn't know what that meant. It basically means you're an inept person. I looked that up. I wanted to make sure it wasn't something ugly. I hear all these slang terms, and I'm scared to use them because I have no idea what they mean sometimes. Like I heard someone say, that's a Karen. I don't want to use that because I have no idea what that means. But Nimrod is an inept person, and that's a good definition because what Nimrod wanted was to lead a nation of people against God, but not necessarily against God, just instead of God. I mean, you see the spirit of Antichrist in Nimrod where he said, we can build our own land, we can build our own city, and we can raise a tower up to God. And they named that place Babel, Babylon. What he wanted was to create without the creator and sustain without the sustainer. Chapter 4 of Revelation tells us our Lord God is the creator of all things, and our Lord Jesus is the sustainer of all things. And isn't it interesting that We have a world now that says we can create our own society without God and we can sustain it without God. We have a world that thinks they can control the weather. That we can control our own destiny. I just think that sometimes diseases that come along should be wake-up calls for humankind to say we really aren't in control. In Revelation 18, you find that the revelator John tells us that this coming kingdom or this coming power that the Antichrist rules is called Babylon, Babylon. There in Revelation chapter 18, then I saw another angel coming down from heaven. The angel had great power. The angel's glory made the earth bright and the angel shouted with a powerful voice, she is destroyed. That great city Babylon is destroyed. She's become a home of demons. That city has become a place of every unclean spirit to live. She is a city filled with all kinds of unclean birds. She is a place where every unclean, hated animal lives. All the peoples of the earth have drunk her wine. 
of her sexual sin and God's anger, and the rulers of the earth sinned sexually with her, and the merchants of the world grew rich from her great wealth and of her luxury. And then I heard another voice come out from heaven and say, come out of the city, my people, so that you may not share in her sins. I want you to understand that this coming world led by the Antichrist is a world that people will want to live in because it will cause them to feel that they are free to live any way they want, to live sexually immoral lives and not think anything of it, to live in luxury and not care about those who are without, to live for themselves and not to live for God. Come out of this. This spirit is already in our world. The outline of how these things happen in Revelation, uh, excuse me, Matthew 24, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He said, as he said on the Mount of Olives, as he's telling them about what is to come, Jesus said, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. The first rider, the white horse, is about deception and overcoming mankind with deception, lies that are from the enemy. We're told by Paul in 2 Corinthians 2 that we should not be outwitted by Satan. We are not ignorant of his devices or his schemes. His schemes are deception. Certainly, Satan would love to be worshiped. He wants that. He desires that. But very seldom are people duped by his call for worship. There are very few Satan worshipers. You've met some, you may know some, but that is not the case for most of humanity. Satan works in much more sinister ways to call people away from Christ, to worship anything but Christ, everything close to Christ but not Christ. The Antichrist is coming this way. He's coming with his version of the truth and his version of what is love But his version of truth and love are nothing more than perversions of the truth and perversions of love. Satan is deceitful. The Antichrist comes with signs and wonders. One of the wonders that he is going to perform is peace on earth. He is going to do something that it seems no one's been able to do. He's going to bring peace to the Middle East. He's going to be the great proselytizer. He's going to persuade people to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, follow after him. He's going to have a religion, and that religion's going to be the religion of man. It will be humanitarian, altruistic. It will be humanistic, but it will definitely lead people away from Christ. And that same spirit that's coming in full to deceive and overcome mankind who rejects God is already in the world. John who writes Revelation, writes a letter to his church. He said in 1 John 2, 18, children, it is the last hour. As you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Antichrists have come in the forms of the occult, worship Satan, but most prominently in cults. Cults who teach falsely about who Jesus Christ is. So that John writes his first John letter to the church to say, here's how you know if someone's of God or not. Do they confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? In other words, do they confess that Jesus is God incarnate? 
There are lots of cults that are teaching close to Christianity, even call themselves sometimes Christians. They say they are followers of Christ, but they do not teach the truth about Christ. They have the spirit of Antichrist. They don't have the true Christ. We better be careful. And I may not get much further than the white horse this morning, but I plan on being in chapter 6 for two weeks. Is that okay with y'all? Because we'll come back to this. Because I believe that this first horse leads the other three. There's going to be great destruction in the world, but it all starts with deception. We better be grounded in the word and doctrine because the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. I, I, I observed this this week. Shared this with the staff. So, so encouraged, but also so, so kind of brokenhearted. Uh, watching some, some young, young guys witness to somebody else. I was in a in this place where they were doing this, and, and of course, now I'm eavesdropping. I'm like, I really want to get into this conversation, because there were three professed Christians witnessing to one unbeliever, and the unbeliever had the upper hand, and the unbeliever kept going and asking questions that the believers could not answer, and I thought, they should be able to answer this. They should be able to answer this. It's not that hard of a question. I'm not being judgmental. I'm, not being hard. I'm grateful they're witnessing. I'm brokenhearted. They don't have a ready answer. I think too many believers are ungrounded and allow immoral people to grab the moral high ground, the high horse of, of, of their form of truth, and, and then don't know how to come around and love people to Christ. Our goal is never to win people to ourselves or win an argument or our hope is that we can show them Jesus Christ. But believers, we better be grounded. We better be grounded. If we're not grounded, we could have someone ask us a question that could cause us to wonder, hath God said? Because that's where it all started in the garden. Hath God said? We'll have college students who will go off to a university and some professor will stand up and make some sort of argument. And then the question will be, has God really said? And by the way, those arguments that have been prevalent in universities now are prevalent in our elementary schools where we have children coming to vacation Bible school who would say, I don't believe in God. I don't think there is a God. I don't think there is a true creation. I think we've evolved. Where did that come from? Because Satan has moved his guns down to the youngest minds in our, in our nation. Here's what happens. There's a spirit of deception that's in the world right now. This white horse is a force of deception coming in a cataclysmic uh, fashion. But this spirit's already here, and we better be sure that we are not ungrounded. When we get disconnected from God's people, there's a vacuum that then is inserted or enabled, and anything and everything will fill that vacuum if we're not careful. If you are disconnected from the teaching of God's Word, disconnected from God's people, there's an opportunity then for lies and false teaching to enter into your heart and mind. How does that happen? Well, it happens several ways. One, through authority figures. There are a number of authority figures who hold out a Bible, who teach what they call biblical principles, who are nothing more than Satan's angels. They are wolves in sheep clothing. They have wonderful, wonderful axioms to live by. They tell you how your life can get better and how you can make it through the day and how you can do better in business and how you can improve your marriage and relationships. And they have great deals of truth coming from God's Word 
problem is that truth is mixed with error. And you've heard the illustration before, but it stands really well here. You and I know that just a little bit of error mixed with a lot of truth is still just as deadly as all error and no truth. If someone gave you a glass of water that was 99% H2O, but 1% strychnine, it would still be just as deadly as if you drank straight strychnine. So how does the enemy work? He doesn't often have people stand up and say, hey, check into the Hotel California and worship Satan. He comes as close to the truth as he possibly can with a mixture of error that will cause people to be deceived so that their soul is damned. This is dangerous. This is why that in our world today, we have many believers who are basing their understanding of Christianity on experiences rather than the authority of Scripture. The Bible says the angel of light comes as a deceiver. The angel of light is the devil. He's called by Paul the angel of light. This is why I'm not sure about experiences, and I don't trust my experiences. This is why I don't trust visions or dreams that I have. Because though they might have some semblance to the truth, they are not rooted in authority. I am not the objective truth God's Word is. What do I mean by this? I mean, be careful. Be careful. I have read accounts where people said that they have died and gone to heaven and they've seen bright lights and they've seen loved ones and they've seen this or that. I put no stock in that. Because I remember that the angel of light, Satan, is a deceiver. And do you know it is very possible that he brought those visions and not God? That's how sinister he is. Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 through 5 says, And Jesus answered them, saying, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. We need to guard against our hearts not being grounded in the Word. And here's the reason that sometimes people, even Christians, can be deceived. And that's not to be deceived to lose our salvation, but to be deceived and not being powerful in this world in which we live. One is the pursuit of our own happiness. And we live in a culture that says pursue happiness at all costs. So we get busy, busy, busy. We get busy doing a lot of things because there are a lot of pressures on us to keep up with everyone around us or to move up the corporate ladder or to make more money. It's not that those things necessarily are bad in and of themselves, but what they do is they create a vacuum when we get so busy that we're not spending time in the Word. We're in this connected from other believers. We're not teaching the word ourselves. We're not gaining more knowledge of the truth. And therefore, we open up a vacuum in our heart that a deceiver would love to feel. The pursuit of personal freedom. We have that constantly in our, our culture, in our face of, I am my own person. I can do what I want to find truth the way I want it, to find truth and love. If you're not careful as a believer, you can be swept up into this cultural phenomenon and begin to think to yourself that true personal freedom is found in doing what you want to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it. But that always leads to prison. How many believers have given themselves back into old sins that they had been set free from are now again in the shackles of those sins. True freedom is not following my truth, but following His. I shall know the truth, and the truth shall set me free. It's the reason why many believers find themselves back in the shackles of sin. They have moved away from the freedom that is in Christ. 
either to legalistic ways or to licentious ways of sin. The pursuit of personal truth and the definition of love is a phenomenon in our culture. We're constantly told what the truth is from culture and what love ought to be. Love everyone. Just love everyone the way they are. John loved truth. But John said in 1 John 4, don't believe every spirit. Every spirit does not confess Christ, and that spirit is not of God. We need to fight deception. And we need to fight deception with one weapon. There's only one weapon that will overcome deception, and that is the truth of God's Word. Well, deception leads to all these other destructions. And I said, I didn't think I'd have time to get to them. We will next week. Thank God for His truth. Say, man, you sound like, Scott, that... If we're not careful, even we as believers can be deceived. That's right. We won't be deceived into losing our salvation, but we can be deceived into believing a lie and losing our testimony or losing the power we have in the world or losing, as it were, in the church at Ephesus, our love for Christ or in the church of Laodicea, our hot-heartedness for the Lord Jesus Christ. This spirit that's coming, this force, this white horse that's coming is already alive and well. The chaos of the world will prove that things are not out of control, however. No matter what we see in the world, our sovereign Lord is occupying eternal throne, an eternal throne. And he has a crown. He has many crowns. He's conquered all. He conquers even deception. Truth overcomes the lie. Don't ever then as a believer get disconnected from your Bible, from the people who are also seeking the truth in the Word of God, and from people who can hold you accountable to the Word of God. That's how serious this is. Let's pray. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity we've had just to begin looking at this chapter. Help us as Lord as we go into depth in this book of Revelation to understand your truth up against the lies that are being told to us constantly. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.